0: And we're live. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Standing Up. This is actually the first standing up that we've done live. All the other ones have been pre-recorded. Decided to switch it up a little bit. If you noticed I look uh, different today. no, it's not a new hairdo. I got a new cam. a new webcam. So improved video quality. Hopefully, this improves the general quality of the live. This Thursday, we have a great debate with two new guests, Daniel Brooks and Muhammad. Oh, I'm forgetting his last name, but that will be posted on my Facebook and on YouTube tomorrow. I have a very exciting guest today. Her name is Mona Sheikh. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I sometimes mess up my pronunciations. I'm, I'm seeing the thumbs up from her. She's not on the screen yet, but I I, I got the word that I pronounced it correctly. I'm not going to introduce her because we're going to get to know her through the next hour. So no introduction needed. I'm very honored to welcome Mona Sheikh, the one and only.
1: Hi, Adarts. Apologies for the uh, slight tardiness.
0: It's okay. I'm Israeli. We're always yeah, we're
1: late. On, we're on it's brown people time, so I just wanted to keep it consistent, you know, because we're brown, you're brown. We just wanted to keep exactly. it consistent. How exactly. are you? Exactly.
0: Welcome. Anna. I'm good. Hanging out. Yeah. How are you?
1: I'm, you know, I'm all right. Just uh, just hanging in, trying to trying to do the best I can. I have to put a headset on because there's like construction going on in the background here, and it's super irritating. So... Every morning just like boom 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 and you're like, oh my God, this is a freaking
2: nightmare.
0: I feel you, sister. We live in I live in Tel Aviv and it's constant construction here, so you just can't escape it. So Yeah, I I bet. I feel the pain. So you're in LA, right?
1: I am in Los Angeles, yes.
0: A lot of are you you guys a lot of fires over here. Yeah, are, are you guys affected by the fires directly?
1: Uh, not directly because most of the fires are up in uh, Northern California. So, uh, you know, we've been getting like just the the wind blowing it this way where the, the cloud has been, the clouds have been very orange. It's been very apocalyptic. It's been very kind of end of days look that we're going for here in LA.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's been a very 2020 kind of scene, right? Sh- so should, 2020. We have, should we have expected anything less?
1: No, not in the slightest.
0: No, definitely not. Well, I'm happy to hear you're safe. And uh, it's a great privilege to uh, get to be speaking to you.
1: Oh, you're very kind.
0: You recently made history as the first Southeast Asian woman to do something. What was that thing?
1: So it's a uh, South Asian slash Middle Eastern, because my mom's side, I'm Persian also. Uh, first South Asian, Middle Eastern female comic to perform in front of a crowd of 60,000. So I made history by doing that, yeah.
0: Amazing. And that was at a specific event?
1: Yeah, it was uh, emceeing the Women's March in San Francisco.
0: Hmm. Oh, damn, you know, I just posted on my Facebook that it was in LA, but uh, correction, it was in San Francisco.
1: Yeah, LA, we're we're working our way into LA, you know. Considering how politically things are gonna go, I mean, if uh, Trump gets reelected, uh, we're definitely gonna be seeing a lot bigger marches, I would think. Uh, especially the women's marches. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty connected with the women's march world. I'm very connected with the uh, the L.A. Pride world because my show that I do um, was going to be the official comedy show for L.A. Pride this year. But of course, because of COVID, everything got canceled. But but yeah, I mean, I, I would think that the the rallies would be pretty big, considering if he gets reelected. So, but we'll see. Hopefully not. Fingers crossed. I don't want those bigger rallies. So hopefully not.
0: Yeah, yeah. I told you my hunch already that I have a feeling he's going to get reelected. But I guess on the bright side, it gives you some work, right?
1: Dude, I honestly, I'd rather. I'd rather not have that kind of work.
0: No, I, I I feel you. I definitely feel you on that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, to our, to our viewers here, welcome. Uh, you know, feel free to have a vibrant discussion in the comments. Ask questions. We'll get to the questions. I see Tom said something. Shout out to Tom. Let us know where in the world you are tuning in from. For the first live standing up podcast, as I mentioned earlier, standing up is normally pre-recorded. The Great Debate is live, but I decided to switch it up because why not? Yeah. So how did you get to the point where, you know, how did you become a comedian? Where where did that come from? Have you known since you were a little girl or did, you know, did you have like a psychedelic experience in the forest and you decided (laughs) what happened?
1: Psychedelic experience. You know, I've yet to have one of those because uh, I have some friends who've been uh, uh, pushing me to do some shrooms, Uh, but no, no psychedelic experiences yet, but I do want to. Uh, I honestly, you know, stand up comedy is not something you know. If you if you're a woman, if you're South Asian, you come from a conservative Muslim household, like stand up is not really something that you're like, oh, I'm gonna grow up to be a stand up comic. That's not even a thing, you know. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a performer when I was about eight years old. I watched this Bollywood movie and I was like, oh my god, who is this actress? She's amazing. I want to do what she's doing. But uh, stand up comedy didn't come in much, much later in my life. Uh, stand-up comedy actually really came by accident. A lot of people ask me, they're like, how did you choose stand-up? I'm like, I did not choose stand-up. Stand-up absolutely chose me. There's no denying about that. Because um, I, so I moved from uh, Pakistan at 15 uh, to New York. I lived with my, my, my brothers, my four older brothers. Uh, they were my legal guardians here. Uh, and when they were here, I remember uh, we used to live in this uh, one bedroom basement apartment in Jersey City. Very poor immigrant story. Um, and uh, we used to watch Letterman every night, you know, David Letterman. I don't know if you ever watched his late night show in New York that used to be shot. So we used to watch the show and um, my brothers would sit there and laugh. And I couldn't understand the references. I, I mean, I couldn't understand because I was new to the country. I didn't really know a lot of the American references. So um, he would make all these jokes and I would turn to my brothers and I'm like, why is that funny? And they would like be like, shh shut up like don't bother us i want to listen to his jokes so i kind of made this uh challenge in my head where i was just like i'm gonna figure out why that's funny like why is that funny you know uh and then of course as you acclimate more into a society you acclimate more you're just like oh that's the reference that he's making oh that's funny or that's what he's talking about oh that's funny uh but even then like stand-up was not really part of the equation really uh I just I just wanted to be a stage actor at that point and that really wasn't going to happen. Um I remember like I was around like 17 and a half, almost at the verge of 18, uh having a conversation with my brothers and I was just like, "Hey, listen, I really don't want to go to college. I just want to I want to become a performer." Uh and my brothers gave me an ultimatum. They said, "Either you're going to go to college and become a physical therapist, which I don't know why the hell they were obsessed with that, uh and or we're going to send you back to Pakistan." And mom's gonna marry you off, so you take your pick. And I was like, "How about neither? You know, can can I curse on this, or is
0: it?" Say whatever the fuck you want.
1: Yeah, I told I I I, I love my brother. I told him to go fuck themselves. I was like, "You you all can go fuck yourself." I was like, "You don't fucking get to call the shots in my life. I get to fucking call the shots in my life. This bitch right here, this bitch calls the shots." So when I turned eighteen, I just packed my bags and I left, and I really never kind of look back I've been you know pretty much on my own and of course you know you're you're new to the country you're I'm like three years in America so I mean really the audacity of that age and, and that you know w- would I do that today absolutely not because there's so much level of awareness and uh, there's a, a also a lot of uh, you know fear that comes into my you're like oh my god how am I gonna get through this how am I gonna pay for this but back then it was just like this pure kind of ambition and this pure drive to like just be just do just live your life Uh, and that's really what i wanted to do and uh and 18 is when i left and like started studying acting in new york city became the stage actor but also had like a side job uh that i made pretty good money at i used to work on the trading floor Uh, i know that's a very big jump uh but i started off as an assistant then became an analyst, did really good, well for myself. Uh, But then the market crashed, and I was like, I think this is a sign from God. This is a sign from God for me to do what I want to do.
0: This was in 08 when
1: the
2: market
1: crashed? Yes, 08. 08 is when uh, the market crashed. And I was just like, you know what? I think God wants me to pursue my dreams. So (laughs) I (laughs) took it as a sign uh, and uh, started taking these other acting classes um, and ended up really, um, met this incredible acting coach. And he told me, he was just like, you're funny. And I was just like, I don't want to be funny. I said, I want to be a dramatic actress. And he goes, no, 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 it's not a bad thing. You can be a dramatic actress, but you can also be funny. And I was like, Oh, really? Uh, that's the guy who discovered, uh, Ellen Pompeo. I don't know if you know who she is.
0: No, not
1: familiar. Uh, uh, Um, God, what was that very famous uh show, the medical show that was here? Uh, do you know Jennifer Aniston? You know Jennifer Mm -hmm. Aniston, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he discovered Jennifer Aniston. He uh, you know, so he worked with like some really like big names and kind of helped them kind of navigate their career. So I was like, I think he might be, he might know what the hell he's talking about. So I respect him. Uh, and then uh, I had a girlfriend, and she was like, you should, you should do stand up. And I was just like, I can't do stand up. She was like, Yeah, you can. She's like, You're funny. You write all the time, don't you? I was like, Yes. She's like, You have stage. You have stage. Uh, you know, experience. You don't have stage fright. I was like, No. She's like, That's it. That's that's stand up. Just just go do it. Which is crazy because stand up is a lot more than that. But I guess from her naivete or naive perspective, she was like, Yeah, that's it. That's that's how you do stand up. So I remember doing my first three minutes at Comics Comedy Club in Meatpacking District, in New York City, which Mm. since then, yeah, the comedy club has went out of business, thanks to my comedy. Um, That's what my stand-up did, it just completely put it out of business. Uh, And I remember doing my first three minutes, and really, like, crushing my first three minutes, and my mom was in the audience with me. Uh, Now, the best part about having uh, an immigrant mother who doesn't really have good speaking, English-speaking skills, is that She doesn't understand half the shit that's coming out of your mouth. So all she's saying is she's like, that is my daughter. She's just like pointing to people. She's like, that is my daughter. And I'm like up there like slinging dick jokes. Like I'm just talking about like all about like the raunchy shit, like whatever. You know, in the beginning, you're just doing topical stuff. So I was just doing topical jokes. Uh, and I remember this guy walking up to me, this producer, and he was just like, how long have you been doing standup for? I was like, oh, that was my first time. And he was like, there's no way that was your first time. I was like, yeah, dude, that was my first time. I've never done standup before. He was like, oh, he's like, you know, you should, you should come back and, uh, uh give me your information. I want to book you on a show. And I was like, I don't even have material to do on your show. Like, this is my first time doing open mic. Uh, and I remember like two or three weeks after I did my first open mic, that club's Booker was watching me and he booked me on the main stage and I recently found the footage of the first time me doing stand-up on stage and I couldn't watch it I was like cringing when I was I was like oh my god this is so embarrassing I was like I can't I can't watch it you know it's just like when you go back you're like oh, I was such a well,
0: you know the the embarrassment is probably just testament to how much you've improved so I'd say it's a good thing that you feel embarrassed by your original yes. stuff
1: exactly exactly because you watch old stuff and i was like oh my god oh my god how could they possibly tolerate this this is horrible i would never book this ac- i would never book this comic this is a horrible
2: comic
1: yeah. uh but uh, they were very gracious and they were very open uh but yeah i i remember watching that and then um i kind of pretty much i had a manager at the time and she was like you should move out to los angeles and i was like why she was like You'll do way better in L.A. You know, there's a lot more TV and film there. <clears throat> and since I had already started doing stand-up, I actually auditioned for a lead role in a Steven Spielberg project. Got a call back, got a producer session. And my manager was just like, you need to move to Los Angeles. Like, that's where you need to be because that's where your opportunities are. And, of course, as it happens, I moved to L.A., And all the auditions disappeared. And I was like, this is nice. I moved all the way across the country to have zero auditions. But uh, the thing that really kind of turned me off from acting was uh, I was up for a lead role in a feature film in New York. It It was like an independent film. It was like a $2 million budget. And they kept bringing me back. Like the director kept bringing me back. The producer kept bringing me back. And they just wouldn't give me the role. And then at the end, I lost the role because it told me that I wasn't hot enough. And I was just like, that's what the fuck it takes to be fucking hot? Where's the fucking skill set? And the the, the actress, what what was that?
0: That's fucked up.
1: It's so fucked up. And they were like, you're not hot enough. I was like, that's all I need. Thank you. I'm out. Goodbye. I'm just going to do stand up. You guys can go fuck yourself. I don't need this. Uh, And I've just been doing stand up. And honestly, single handed greatest choice I could have made. So thank you to that fucked up producer and director for putting me in that direction. Thank you for them, you know. But that uh, actress that they hired was so bad that they had to cut her out from most of the movie.
0: They should have gone with you.
1: They should have gone with me. I could have done a way better But you know what? It wasn't meant for me. I was meant to be directed to be here.
0: For sure. I mean, that's what I put you on your, your path and what helped you make history, right? And... I don't want to say the rest is history. I want to say the rest is history in the making because you're still doing it.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: That, that's a fascinating story. I, I, I want to go back a little bit because I, there's, there's some more details I'd like. So you There's moved... a
1: lot more details. I just kind of gave you the overview. Yeah,
0: for sure. So you moved from Pakistan to New York when you were 15. Was yeah. that your first time coming to the United States?
1: No, the first time I was uh, I visited US was back in ninety one. I was like uh, eleven years old. Our family history is a very unusual immigrant story, uh, in the sense that I have four older brothers, and my second and my third brother were given expired vaccination for polio, and they ended up getting getting polio because of it.
2: Whoa, sorry to yeah. hear that.
1: Yeah, so it was really it was really hard in our family. It really kind of broke our family apart. My parents would like fight and bicker all the time because of it. Uh, And uh, my mom left me when I was six months old to bring my brothers here for their treatments. And pretty much uh, all like earlier in my life, my mom really wasn't around. I really didn't grow up with my mom. She wasn't around. It was usually my grandmother and my aunt and my dad who primarily raised me. So my mom would just kind of go back and forth. And whenever she would come around and I'm like, who's this lady? Who is she? Why is she here? why why is she bossing me around? What's up with this uh, and because I used to call my grandmother mom uh i I mean means mom mm-hmm. and it was like this kind of adjustment process where because my mom was traveling to the u s so much, I didn't really really kind of get to know my mom so well so so that's how our family started coming to the u s you know, and of course, my mom's side of the family is very politically heavily involved there, so that was another big deal so it it got to a point where my mom was helping pursue uh my uh, she was helping uh pursue my uh my uncle to get elected in one of these uh major you know positions uh and uh it was getting ugly it was getting a little ugly we were getting a little bit of the threats we were it was getting becoming a little bit of an unsafe place you know, for us to be there. So my mom was like, "You know what?" My parents were like, "I think it's a better option to just send the kids to America to like, you know, mm. pursue education and to live." But they, I don't, I, I, don't think stand-up comedy, especially for their only youngest daughter, was part of the plan.
0: That's not what they had in mind. Nope. No, nope. I known. don't. I don't know them, but I know that's not what they had in mind. <laughs> what, uh...
1: You must know Middle Eastern parents so well, Adar.
0: A wee bit. A wee bit. Uh, what uh, Did you have culture shock when, when you came? That, that's kind of what I want to know. What, what it was like coming for the first time from, I guess, that has a different interpretation. Yeah. That's not what I meant. What it means coming for the first time from Pakistan to New York.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What culture shock you had.
1: For me, uh, the first time I came, it wasn't so much of a sh- uh, culture shock. I think the biggest culture shock uh, for me was when I went to high school because I saw pregnant teenagers, and I had never seen that before.
2: Mm.
1: Because you know, back in Pakistan, we just call them married. So I was just like, "That's just I don't understand why you're going to school." Like we just right. call them married people back then. So that was like the big uh, culture shock.
0: Okay, and. Uh- You said your brothers had trouble with you getting into acting. At what point did they get over it or are they still not over it?
1: I don't think, um, you know, that's just something, uh, I mean, just to be entirely transparent, I really don't speak to three of my brothers. I mean, just one brother is Mm -hmm. the one I speak to. You know, a lot of my, most of my brothers have a real problem with me being a standup comic. They have a, you know, standup comedy is very much about honesty and just kind of also putting your personal life on, you know, on the stage and just kind of talking about very deep personal things and pretty much talk about anything you want. And that doesn't sit very well with them. So.
0: so would you say they disowned you? Is that, is that what happened?
1: I don't know why if they disowned me, I definitely would say, uh, Maybe I've disowned them to a certain extent. I think the disowning might be mutual at this point. So, uh, you know, uh, honestly, Adar, I have no like hard feelings towards them. It's not yeah. something they understand. It's not their world. They've never pursued it, you know. So it's not their dream. It's my dream. Like they live their lives. They're happy. I live my life. I'm happy. Like I, I really, I really don't care, you know, in the beginning, like you're the youngest child, you're the girl. You're like, oh my God, I wanna. You know, I want I want to kind of have them some kind of support. I want to have some kind of validation. But after a while, you realize that the only validation you really need is yours. You know, are you OK with it? Are you comfortable? Are you happy with it? It's like, yeah, all of those things, just yes. like, well, then their opinion really is irrelevant. You know, yeah. whether they like it, whether they want it or not, that's on them. That's not my problem.
0: I'm I'm with you completely, and you know we mentioned uh, taking psychedelics at the beginning. I think, uh, you know, you said you haven't tried it yet, so I think that'll be an awesome experience for you. But I think your brothers might need it even more than you, so they can uh,
1: <laughs> liberate. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, I I doubt it if they'll ever. Uh, they have sometimes. Uh, my brother has a problem even learning that I'm I smoke weed. I mean, he's just like, mm-hmm. oh my god. My mom was visiting me, and I was mm-hmm. making her get high with me
0: and okay so that, that probably upset them
1: yeah that yeah one of my brothers was just like don't you not, like not do that i'm like do what And he's like make mom get high i was like she's so much better when she's high i was like i promise you i was like she smiles with her teeth out you can see her teeth because she usually doesn't have her teeth out you know all you see all her smiling she's like and i'm like but you Know what once she I, I took her to a show and they had these weed cupcakes and she didn't know they were weed cupcakes, uh, and she ate like two of them. Uh, wow, Adar, I don't think I've ever seen my mom smile so much, I don't think I've ever seen this level of joy on her face, uh, as those cupcakes had brought out. So it was,
2: wow. it was good, yeah. I yeah.
0: mean, edibles could really, really hit the spot, sometimes they could take you. to to the next level, like farther than you want to, want to go. But yeah, I'm happy she had a good experience. Is that, is that something cultural not showing your teeth when you smile?
1: I think it is. Yeah. Showing emotions is, uh, you know, you just kind of keep everything is like reserved. We don't talk about our family in public. You know, you keep you, 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 you know, what are other people going to say? How are other people going to judge you? So we don't talk about our personal problems on stage, which I definitely do. Uh, we don't talk about, you know, anything that's happening internally, eternally. We don't talk about anything sex related. We don't curse in public. So I literally break every single rule. Uh, so I am every South Asian parent's worst nightmare, uh, because I'm a single woman in my thirties who pursues standup comedy, uh, slings a bunch of dick jokes on stage, uh, curses quite a bit. Uh, and pretty much talk about a great deal of my personal life. So yeah.
0: I mean, it sounds to me like you're describing what the perfect woman would be. So, you know, it's hard <laughs> to uh,
1: That's very common, you would, Thank uh, you.
0: Struggle with that lifestyle.
1: Yeah, right. Look at you, Adar. You know you know how to talk to the ladies. I see you.
0: I learned a thing or two in my days.
1: <laughs>
0: I uh, you, you're working in a male-dominated industry. Yes. May, perhaps one of the most male-dominated industries. Yeah. How, how do you think that's held you back? Or has it maybe in certain areas played as some kind of an advantage, as like a novelty of sorts? What, what's what been your experience as, a, as one of the few female comics?
1: You know, uh, Adar, I think there is this uh, misconception that there aren't a lot of female comics. The thing is that there's a lot of female comics. The only reason you don't see a lot of female comics is because they're not given the same opportunities as the male comics are so when you go and check out a comedy club's lineup it's predominantly male and specifically white male okay it's not even a bunch of black dudes or latino dudes it's not even that that's why you have like minority nights you'll have like you know chocolate Sundays at last factory here because that's an bl- entirely black night dedicated to black comics and to people of color like myself uh, or you know oh there's I lose you there for a sec
2: no no
0: for some okay. reason it, once in a while you, you'll see a little thing on the screen the viewers can't watch that but can't see that but yeah there' a little thing popped up we're good oh, okay.
1: okay um it i feel like it has gotten a uh, very tad bit better I think mainly because so, for instance, the Comedy Store, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, comedy clubs, the most renowned comedy clubs here in Los Angeles. I um, went and auditioned to be a page regular on the sh- on the on the on the, cl- the club's lineup, uh, and I remember auditioning. I remember doing incredibly incredibly well, at, uh, and then just not passing. And then I started looking at their roster of comics who have past and none of them are brown not even your established comics like your aziz and saris and your Kamel nanjiani and uh i don't even think russell peter's on there like it's it's quite fascinating to me how you know they had been kind of very um you know kind of dismissive uh especially mitzi shore who founded the club mitzi god god rest her soul she was the more inclusive one. She was the one, "Hey, I want to hear from the female comic. I want to hear from the Arab comics. I want to hear from the Middle Eastern comics. I want to hear from the Israeli comics. Like I want to give these folks like an opportunity." But as she got older and the new management took over, they had been very kind of white boy club exclusive. It's very white boy club exclusive. So, um, but I think, you know, for me, uh, what I did is I approached them and I was like, "Look, there's no way in hell, that I'm ever going to pass this place. So can I just produce a show? I'll produce a show. I'll put up the money. I'm from other shows. I'll bring the people. And they were like, yeah, sure. Uh, And I made history there as well, being the first, again, South Asian, Middle Eastern person to uh, produce a successful comedy show. So Comedy Store, I've been very lucky. You know, I've had some really big names uh, come through. I've had your Tiffany Haddish. I've had... uh, Rami Youssef, I've had Eliza Schlesinger, Nikki Glaser. I mean, these are like really big names in the comedy world. I don't know. Do you know who these people are?
0: Yeah, a few of them. A okay. Of them.
1: Yeah, Killing so it. a lot of... Sorry? Killing it. Killing it, you know, just... uh, And then I was like, you know, this this club... The club wasn't really supporting uh what I was doing because it was becoming more and more very white boy exclusive. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to take the show and I'm going to make it a touring show. So that's what we did. And I... Took it to, first I kind of tested it out. I took it to uh, Orange County. I don't know if you've been to Orange County, but Orange County has become very diverse, very big Asian population, very big South Asian, very big Arab population. So I took the show there. And the first one of the shows that I did there had 300 women show up to watch the show. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then LA Times called me up. They're like, hi, did you know that you're like the talk of the town? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, you're the talk of the town. They were like, everybody wants to get a ticket for your show. And I was like, yeah, I was only expecting like 80 people on the show. <laughs> like, And this is right after pursuing. This is right after emceeing the Women's March. So I'm at the Women's March and I'm seeing all these ticket sales come in. And I was like, is there something wrong with the system? Like what's going on? Are these? Are these false? Like, basically make a mistake and by the time i got back and they were like yeah the 80 room i was like the 80 room is not gonna work out i need like a 300 seater so they gave me a 300 seater and we just packed the room out it was literally one of the best shows i've ever done it was incredible and pretty much after that we've just been like killing the show so my shows i predominantly focus on like arab girls night out and armenian girls night out and persian girls night out and uh you know, Desi, Desi is a slang way of saying South Asian, South Asian, you know, so those are the people. And it's incredible how that market is starved. It's not even catered to. So when they find a show like mine, they're like, Oh, my God, I must go see the show. Because I'm just giving all these women opportunities the comics that you didn't even know existed and they're so talented and they're so amazing but they're not going to be given competition you know they're not going to be given any kind of breaks out of major comedy clubs
0: right i i want to try to break this down a a little deeper in a non-controversial way easier said than done but let's try so there's more male comedians than female comedians Mm -hmm. it's possible that either for cultural reasons or biological reasons on average, right? We're only talking about average. It's possible that men just seem to prefer to go down that career path that will create some disparity. That's Mm -hmm. just one potential explanation. Then there could be the barrier to entry. If the majority of the people who are booking uh, comedians happen to be white males, let's say they Mm -hmm. may, and not even consciously, right? This isn't a form of blatant racism. They're not thinking, I don't like women, I'm not going to book them. They mm-hmm. may just subconsciously be giving preference to uh, people who look more like them. And then the the solution to that would be to raise awareness, A, about this issue, but also B, to try to get more w- women and minority groups in these positions of power so that yeah. they can you know, help bring a fair representation. And then an, an, another aspect that might play into it is it possible that the way they're booking it is just based off what they think will sell better? So d- do they think that maybe the majority of people who go to comedy clubs are white males, so if we book a white male, they're more likely to show up? Mm-hmm. So I- I'm just kind of putting d- different ideas that I think might plant hit. it. Yeah. I actually have a feeling it might be a combination of everything uh, just mentioned, but what you said, you said something very important that it seems like they just realized the market You said 300 women showed up. They're seeing a market. What happens when you book a female comedian? Right? It's it seems Mm -hmm. to bring out a market of its own. So it seems like this might be the single most important important aspect of of what we're talking about. Because if comedy clubs realize that it's and again, I'm just uh, I you know we live in a world where people are just doing acting in their own self-interest, I don't think that we can necessarily change that, but let's just, you know, feed, uh, like play into that, that drive that people have to benefit themselves and say, okay, well, they could see that it's advantageous for them to book female comics because, you know, women will then show up, then they're going to start doing it more. So I'd say that, that with the increased awareness of, um, Good representation i think does it seem like we're making good progress would you agree that that we're in the right direction
1: you know um uh the, yeah, let's tackle the first part of it right sure. is it i think in the beginning like especially you know you're, you're with your the, the start of your you know the wonderful and amazing lenny bruce who i absolutely love and uh gives a lot of credit for for so many of the comics today if it was if there was no lenny bruce there would be no George Carlin that would be no Robin Williams I mean Lenny Bruce really kind of really took the bullet for all of us um he was he was kind of like our Christ in a way you know because uh, you know the authorities really came after him and they really destroyed his career they because he wasn't allowed to talk about you know controversial topic he wasn't allowed to curse he wasn't allowed to talk about sex I mean he really broke the barrier for comics to have that freedom but I think predominantly, I mean, you know, you you've also had female comics like your, you know, Marla Mabels and you know, like some of the older female generation. But predominantly, it has been male. There's no denying about that. But right. I feel like what has happened, you know, then you also had your amazing Joan Rivers and Ellen DeGeneres foot coming up, and you know, and Paula Poundstone yes. and all these amazing female like Rita Rudner. They, you know, they were also there and they were really breaking into even a tougher market than I'm breaking into. Uh, In that sense, because there's a lot more acceptance and there's a lot more conversation about diversity and representation now than ever before. But I feel like I think what comedy clubs are doing is that when they they don't see people like myself as mainstream people, we are only reserved for ethnic nights. Right. Like nobody wants to come and watch Mona Shake talk about her journey and her personal life nobody wants to talk about uh, nobody wants to hear Mona Sheik talk but you don't know that you don't know that like you've never booked me so you don't know that right if Mona Sheik can go out and pull in 300 people here and 250 people there and 150 people here clearly there is a market right there clearly there is something going on here but I feel like uh the bookers are primarily uh, white male, So just like you said, they like to book people who look like themselves. It's a lot maybe easier to kind of maybe navigate and work through. Uh, it's a lot easier to book the likes of uh, Louis C.K., who, thank God, is not kind of not not working right now. But, you know, it's a lot easier to pull people like that and give them kind of opportunities. But, you know, I look at the lineup sometimes and I'm just like, these people aren't I've watched their comedy. I've been in the business for about 12 years now. I watch some of these people and I'm just like I don't I don't understand how this person is getting this break right now because they're talking about turkey sandwiches. Like what? Like this is crazy talk, you know? But they right. are you know, there's also the political aspect of it. You're in, you know, you're one of the cool ones. So you're like in with the booker. So they book you. You're like, oh man, you know, you're hanging out with a bigger cook, you know, bigger comedian. So they're just like, oh, this kid is all right, you know. But with also with the female aspect, there's also kind of comes in a little bit of the sexual aspect, right? It's just like, uh, oh, oh, you're cute. And like, you're funny. Hmm, maybe, maybe I can try to hit it. Like, maybe if you let me, like, Maybe if that's good, like, maybe I can try to get it in like, Oh, but then it becomes awkward. Well, I'm not really interested. I'm just a comic. Oh, now it got awkward. So there's also, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, fucked up, you know, sexual harassment that goes on in the comedy world, like a lot, which really hasn't been confronted on the level the way it has been in Hollywood. It just hasn't because there's, there's still a lot of it that still is going on and he's, people are doing these guys are doing pretty horrific things and saying some horrific things and getting away with a lot of bad stuff but and have no repercussions because, you know, nobody calls them out. So um that being said, I mean, you know, comedy clubs really look at people like myself as dedicated to ethnic nights. You are dedicated to uh, you know, that once a month ethnic night we're due, maybe I'll book you on it. Maybe. You know? Or yeah. Or you have to be one of the bros. Are you one of the bros? Oh, I'm, Oh dude, I'm totally cool. Are you making fucked up misogynistic jokes? Oh man, dude, that's hilarious. Oh my God. I love it. Oh, you think all the women are bitches and hoes? Oh, you are fucking killing it, man. I fucking love you. You're so great. Hey, can I get a spot?
2: Right. I can't do
1: that.
2: I can't do that. Dar. I can't do it.
0: That's interesting. It's challenging, right? Because it's almost like the, they they book ethnic comics on ethnic nights because they just think that that will bring more people, and they're worried that if they book ethnic comics comics on non-ethnic nights, then that'll bring less people. So it's almost like even if we could get all elements of misogyny and racism out of the way, all um,
2: mm-hmm. if
0: biases, if we can remove all of that from the equation there is still uh, market forces that is telling the the people booking that it might be better to to book people who look like the audience. And I I don't even know how to solve something like that. It's almost like we need – maybe we just need comics to –
1: Adar, you know what it is? It's the same conversation that is happening and has been happening among Hollywood Studios executives – for the longest time, Hollywood executive, studio executives said, Well, we can't make, we can't put like uh, an ethnic person as a lead role because it's not going to make money. It's not going to sell. Oh, we yeah. can't have, you know, and then comes along the massive franchise of Fast and the Furious with a super diverse cast, makes a shit ton of money worldwide. And all of a sudden, people are like, Wait, you said that. It doesn't make money, but it totally does. Mm -hmm. Then Black Panther comes along. Black Panther ends up scoring, being the highest earning Marvel movie ever. And they're like, well, wait a minute. You said anything with ethnic or Black lead roles or Latino would not make money, but numbers are telling me otherwise. So it's the same conversation and the same mentality.
0: So thank you for that, because you made me more optimistic, because as you saw, I had a little dilemma of how do we solve this? And what what you're showing is that it's already naturally being solved. We're seeing more and more representation and people Mm -hmm. are watching these films. Yeah. And I would actually say if you look at it in terms of uh, African-American comedians, some of the most most loved comedians amongst white Americans are Dave Chappelle, Cat Williams. Chris Rock, so we, we've broken that barrier, right? So there is yep. there is a crossover where we're seeing that comedy humor is universal, right? It's it, yeah. it sees no race or gender or language or sexual orientation. It's universal, and I think that's what what we're slowly starting to see. So you're part of that smashing that glass ceiling, I guess.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I feel like uh, I I think what I am I am part of that kind of maybe. First or maybe second, first, more like first generation of like South Asian kind of Middle Eastern females that are going and kind of breaking that ceiling, you know, kind of paving the road for other people to be like, hey, this is possible. You can do this. You you can come in. You are welcome. Your stories are welcome. Your stories mean something. Come and tell us. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think a lot of that shift is happening right now.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. What is the most annoying thing you hear from people when you tell them you're a comedian?
1: Tell me a joke.
0: I knew that. I knew that's what you were going to say. I
2: was. Yeah. Uh,
1: I but knew I, it. For the longest time, Adar. For the longest time, I used to be like, what do you do? Like, I'm a doctor. Oh, I'm a surgeon. I'm like, great. Can you operate on someone? Let me see what you do. Like, it's a bizarre thing to ask someone.
0: Yeah. It's almost like, it's like, uh, Sit, doggy. Jump. You know, it's it's like yeah. I don't. I don't it's g- right.
1: It's being asked right. to be a fucking joke monkey. I'm not a right. goddamn joke monkey. Like I'm not going to be like. Mm, did, 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 did. You're like it's not like this is not a fucking circus, right? <laughs> it's just like I'm. How, uh, it's a craft. You rest-
2: how do you
1: rest- now? Now I say. Uh, I said, pay me.
0: Ooh, I like that. You I you accept- show me your like cash app barcode or something. Yeah. Swipe- yeah, I'm like, I'll, pay
1: me. I'm like, it's a hundred bucks a joke. Can you afford it? Oh, that's expensive. Uh, well, that's, you know, you're paying, you're paying for the, all the years of dedication and sacrifice to pay up.
0: That's uh premium.
1: Premium. hundred bucks uh, a joke. They shut up.
0: When we meet in person, I'll, uh, I, I would pay that to, to hear one of your jokes.
1: You're very kind of I would not charge you anything with friends.
0: There we go. But I'm, and, I know,
1: I, and I know you'll never ask me that. You'll never be like, tell me a joke, Mona. Like You're, you're smarter than that.
0: Exactly. I, I like to think I am. I mean, I, I, I predicted that that would be your response because when I was thinking, what do I want to ask Mona? I'm like, I'm not going to ask her to tell me a joke because everybody probably asks her that. And that's probably the worst question that's probably the most common and worst question you could ask a comedian. So therefore, I'm gonna ask her what the worst the most annoying question she, she gets asked. That was my thought process, how how I got to uh to that. I wanna touch more on the sexual harassment and abuse that happens in the world of comedy. I mean, it's it seems to be prevalent in just about every industry around the world. Would you say that one of the reasons why female comedians have trouble speaking up, aside from the usual, you know, there's victim blaming and slut shaming and, you know, all the stuff that we see when women try to speak up. Would you say that they also think that it will get in the way of progressing their career and that kind of creates a pressure for them to need to remain silent?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like, I think, that is kind of a through line in pretty much any profession, right? If you go up and, and let's say if a bigger, a more established male comic, which has happened twice in my case, would, is sexually harassing you, uh, is sexually demeaning you, is coming on to you, giving you shoulder, unwanted shoulder rubs, where you're like, you don't need to touch me. Like, please don't touch me. Um, and if you say something, You're not gonna work because this person has clout. They have power. They can like call up clubs and they can call up Booker and be like, "Hey, you know, if you book so and so, I'll never come and work with you again." Right. Right. So they're losing out of money. So they're like, "Oh, you know what? This comic, this female comic, is not even that established. So it's you know whatever. We can just dismiss her." So I feel like you know that was that was definitely the case with uh, in Louis Mm -hmm. C.K. situation. I don't know if you know the entire story of it.
2: Do you yeah, know the story? Yeah. Familiar,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Louis CK has these two female comics. they are our duo. They're opening for him. They he comes to the green room, he shuts the door, and he says, Hey, you guys don't mind if I jerk off in front of you, right? And the girls are like, Oh my god, Louis, you're so funny. ha 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 ha. And then he shuts the door, stands in front of the door, takes his pants down and starts jerking off right in front of the two girls. Right? And they're like, uh, what the fuck just happened? What the fuck is happening? And he's just like, no, you're going to watch me jerk off in front of you. And you know, like to me, that's always like, is that, are you asking the girls for, for feedback? Are you asking if the strokes are right? Like, if you're doing it right? Like, what is like, It's about power.
0: That, yeah, that seems like such an odd fetish, right? It's like, watch me jerk off. It's almost like reverse voyeurism. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, interesting.
1: It's forced voyeurism, you know? It's forced.
0: Right. And you think it's a power move. Yeah, I could see that. Do you think, it it seems like out of many of the people who are accused of sexual harassment, Louis C.K. responded, Quite elegantly, I, I, I would say. Uh, do you think that was enough? He, he,
1: was, he wasn't very eloquent before, a year before the Me Too movement kicked in. You know, a year before the Me Too movement came out, he was being interviewed. Uh, Roseanne Barr actually called him out on Twitter. And she said, Louie, we all know you've, what you've been doing and sexually harassing female comics, and your time's going to come. It's all going to come to light. And he was just like, eh. And then Vanity Fair, this woman was interviewing him and said, Louis, there have been accusations and conversations happening that you've been sexually harassing other females and female comics. And he goes, ah, I don't pay any mind to those things. They don't mean anything to me. They're just stupid accusations. And then a year later, when the Me Too movement happened, he was like, oh, fuck. Now the shit is really going to hit the fan. I better come out and confront it rather than somebody else telling the narrative. Let me go and try to take control of the narrative. And he was like, yeah, I'm so sorry, this and that. It's like, well, but a year ago, you were cocky as fuck. Like a year ago, you were just like, fuck these bitches, I don't care. They don't mean anything to me. And now you're like, oh my God, I'm I'm so sorry. It was just so, I, I just didn't. And it's just like, no, you're only doing that because you know the Me Too movement was going to come and crush your career. That's why. Yeah, you thought yeah. that maybe if you jump ahead of the game, then maybe you can try to take control of the narrative, but eh, that's not going to happen.
0: Right. So you think too little, too late.
1: Too little, too late. He was he was trying to play the system. He was trying to play the movement. He was just like, oh, yeah, I totally was like apologetic. No, you weren't.
0: Right. You know, that that's, that's interesting because it – it poses a challenge. I I recently um, wrote a post that there was there was recently a, a horrific gang rape incident here in Israel. I heard uh, about
1: that.
0: Yeah, so uh, it, it reawakened an important conversation about you know aspects of rape culture that that need to be addressed, misogyny, and I decided to write a post. It, speaking on this issue, but also addressing that I very much was a part of that culture, you know, the the way I would talk about women, uh, that I would, you know, hit it and quit it, as they say, that right. I would consider sexually liberated women sluts. So yes. I was very much, very much, uh, I didn't always have clear understanding of boundaries and consent, right? I, I was just mm-hmm. what, what you'd call a typical dude. So for me, it seemed clear that let's start by owning our shit right T- take responsibility we could change we right. could evolve we we could learn and also i've been going through the process of trying to reflect on my past and see if there's anybody i need to reach out to to apologize to yeah and there's not many that i could at least that i could remember you know i spent a lot of years in my life partying so perhaps um you know who knows right And again, I'm not I I don't think there's a single woman in this world who says Adar sexually abused me, but I'm sure there's women who feel that I that I've made them uncomfortable. And, that you know, that's to me is just enough. uh, You know, it's worth an apology. But what you bring up an interesting point that. It's almost like Louis C.K. could have almost been seen like he's preempting it in order to do the right thing, but he was just preempting it to to cover it up cover his ass. Yeah. So it's like, what's that balance? How do we find that balance? Right. Cause I want men to own their shit,
2: right.
0: recognize, recognize how they've acted in the past. And I want them to reach out and apologize. This is part of reconciliation. This sure. is what we need to be doing. Uh, but how do we make sure that it's not, I, I guess, I guess it just shouldn't be in automatic forgiveness, right? Just cause you own your shit doesn't mean you shouldn't be held accountable if you did right. something new bad right so it's the balance it's let's ownership and if you did something horrific you know face the consequences that being said i think that it's it's you know it's it's hard to expect men to publicly go out there and and acknowledge something especially if it's going to have some kind of social repercussions right i you know it was easier for me to oh, do it just,
1: repercussions too massive yeah yeah
0: yeah I feel like it was a bit easier for me to do because I, I know that I haven't done anything horrific. Right. So it's easier for me, but I'm sure that there's a lot of men uh, who have done horrible things and for them to come out is just not, they're not even considering it. They're probably just living in fear that one day it's going to come back to bite them yeah. in ass. And yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, we're walking the fine line. We need to find that balance between men. You know, we need to give, men's space to feel comfortable coming out and speaking uh and also you know understand that if you did something horrible there are there will be some repercussions so
1: Yeah. yeah you know dar um uh here's the thing there's one thing about making a woman uncomfortable there's another taking your dick out jerking off then intimidating the women saying that if you open your mouth or I'm going to marry you, which is what Louis did. That that you have to kind of stop and be like, what else is up your sleeve? Have you raped women that are terrified of coming out? Have you done that to women? Because it sounds like you have, right? Uh, Harvey Weinstein did. So these are all stepping stones, right? Making a woman uncomfortable, making sexual remarks, sexually demeaning the woman, physically touching her when she doesn't want it. Next thing you know, dragging her, then there leads to rape, right? And then there's there's these stepping stones of the encouragement. Oh, I did this bad thing and I didn't have any repercussions? Great. Let me take it a little step further and a little right. step further. These guys did not just wake up one day and were just like, I'm going to rape a woman. Bill Cosby just didn't wake up one morning and said, I'm going to give coilets to women and rape them. He was testing the ground. He was testing the waters, probably. He was just like... Oh, I touched her. Nothing happened. Oh, I'm a powerful man. They can't say shit. Oh, I did this. Oh, nothing happened. Oh, yeah, I'm a powerful man. Oh, I'm Bill Cosby. I am a clean cut comedian. I would never like, right? You. Oh, how dare you come out and accuse me? I mean, you're talking about upwards of 52 women that had been screaming on top of their lungs for years, years. Nobody gave a shit what these women had to say. They were dismissed as money hungry, Attention hungry. Uh, there were, uh, you know, slut shame. They were called whores, or you probably threw yourself at him because he's a famous man. Tried to make money off of him. Over fifty women that were drugged and raped and demeaned and dismissed. Okay, that's a very powerful thing.
2: Yeah. And the
1: only reason Bill Cosby was held accountable. Is because Hannibal Burris, who is also a black male comic, not a white comic, a black male comic who went on stage and called Bill out. He said, Bill has been raping women for years and these women have been dismissed. And that clip went viral. And that's how all the other old cases resurfaced. And they were like, yes, these women are like, yes, we've been saying this for years. This man is a rapist. So, There are these levels to harassment. There's levels to it, right? If you make a woman uncomfortable, yes, you know what? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. I apologize. I'll be more mindful. And you genuinely are apologetic and you're absolutely going to work on changing your attitude. It's another to be giving coelhoots to women for years and years and raping them and then totally shrugging it off and saying, I'm a powerful (laughs) man. What are you going to do about it? Right? Right. It's a very different thing. So, I say this thing where people should be calling the shit out within their own communities. What do I mean by that? If you're a white guy who sees another white dude who's a fucking rapist, call that shit out. That's you can do that because you have you're within that community. If I am um, within uh, you know in my community, uh, like you know you you're talking about Middle Eastern or South Asian male comics, I'm gonna call the shit out in my community. I'm gonna of course call it out if somebody else does it too, but it's it's the people keeping holding other people accountable within their own communities. Hold your people accountable. You did something shitty, I'm going to fucking hold you accountable. Don't fucking do that shit because it reflects poorly on all of us. Don't do that shit. Don't fucking say that. Don't do that. Let's right. fuck up. Don't do that shit. You know, if a Muslim woman comes out and starts making anti-semitic remarks, I'm going to shut that bitch down. Shut the fuck up. Let's right. make that Don't talk about that shit. This shit is not welcome. Check. People within your community, check them.
2: Check them. I'm, check with, them. You. I'm with
1: you. Hold them accountable. No, that's not cool. You cannot say that. You cannot do that.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's that's great advice. And you know, I, I think it's also legitimate to check somebody not in your community. They'll just be less receptive to what you have to say. So it's it's more important that we focus on people who have a similar identity to us. Yes. Uh, you, you make a very good point about levels. Right. Rape and groping. It's just not the same. Both shouldn't be done, but it's not the same. Yeah. It seems like that on the lower levels, there's still some understanding that needs to be had. I I think I think a good example is Aziz Ansari. Right. He was accused of making a move on a woman, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, it was a it was. It was a very bad day gone very horribly wrong.
0: Right. Now, the, I uh, again, I don't know all the details, but I don't think that should be considered harassment or assault. Because if the difference between what you consider harassment is if she's attracted to you, me, yeah. meaning like if a man goes in for a kiss and gets rejected and he, he's then done, he doesn't try again. Yes. That that cannot be considered harassment. Like we we need to understand that.
1: What the, what is the context? Are you on a date?
0: Right, right, for sure. If it's just you walk up to a woman on the street and try to kiss her, then that's harassment. But like on a, on a date, the situation that Aziz Ansari was in, it yes. seemed like he just he, he he wasn't he wasn't like he wasn't cool enough, right? He didn't pull it off slick, you know. He he tried making a move on someone who wasn't interested in him, and then that kind of. So and from what I understand, the story is you, you might know more details, but from what I understood.
1: I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish what you say,
0: from what I understood. It's not like he was persistent. He kept trying. It's just he he was awkward in his attempt and did not succeed. And and maybe, you know, he had some expectations. Maybe the woman didn't even see it as a date. She just saw it as something professional that made her very uncomfortable. And rightfully so. Right. I'm not in any way trying to negate. Uh, what, what, what the woman who we made a move on felt. The question is, we, we should just accept that that is a, a level of discomfort that s- might come sometimes in dating that d- does yeah. not classify as harassment.
1: Yes. You know, in, uh, in Aziz's case, uh, I read the story. Uh, I read the details. I read the accusations. Um, this is a girl who met Aziz Ansari, knew who he was, very famous guy, clearly very well off. They go on a date, they go back to his place, and he's trying to make the moves, and she is, I think they kissed, and then he was trying to, like, take it to the next level, and she was like, um, no, I'm not, like, ready to do that kind of thing, and I think what happened in Aziz's case is that he wasn't picking up the emotional cues. Mm is not picking up the emotional cues that he's making her uncomfortable, right? Right, okay. she's like, um, no, then she kisses him, but then she's like, no, you know, I wanna check out with you, but I don't wanna fuck you. So there's right. like, so pick up the emotional cues, which brings a very massive point. Men around the world, it's a, it's a global phenomenon. From a young age, boys are told to not act like girls, don't show emotion. Don't cry. What are you, a girl? Don't cry. When you start telling a human being they can't express themselves, um, they, the, the feminine thing or the sensitive things that they do is dedicated is only reserved for the women and it's not for you, even though you're human and you're absolutely entitled to those emotions and to experience those feelings, those boys grow up to be like, yeah, I'm a fucking macho man. I don't right. feel things. You know what? I also, you also cripple them emotionally because now they're not picking up fucking emotional cues. You're, you're fucking up the process of the emotional cues. You're telling boys that they can't be sensitive. You're telling them that you, you, you're not, you're not, don't read the emotional cues. This thing that you're feeling, it's not real. Dismiss it. You're fucking up with their emotional cues. You're telling them that it's not right. okay to do that. It's fucked up.
0: And, and I think in general, it's, that's. This is something that should be reinforced through our education system for both women and men. Emotional intelligence is one of the single most important qualities any human being can have. And it's something that that obviously some people are naturally have more, some people have less, but everybody can improve their, their EQ. And the fact that this isn't taught in schools is just crazy. So I'd say, yeah, and, and maybe having a more robust conversation about consent yes. right so when uh, i was at burning man last year and they're very very strict uh, they have 11 principles the 11th is is consent and you know when you have 70,000 people in the desert for a week together being free using substances y- you need some kind of code of conduct to keep people safe or or even not even not only safe but also having women not being uncomfortable situation after uncomfortable situation after uncomfortable su- situation. So what they do is they, they really take a, a stricter stance on consent. And if you want to put your hand on someone, even, even on their shoulder, you, you need to ask permission. You just need to ask permission to touch someone. Yes. Men need to ask women, men need to ask men, women need to ask men. We, we all need to ask each other if we want to put our hands on someone. Now, because of how we're, we're programmed, it, it seems foreign to do this and it's even frowned upon, right? It's it's almost like a sissy move. It, it's viewed as a sissy move amongst men, and also I think many many women would find it a little bit passive, you know, not not strong. If if a man asked if he could if he could uh, make a move, if the woman was interested, right? Let let's say a woman's interested in a man, and he's like, "Can I kiss you?" It almost takes the romance out of it. Yeah. So. There's all these social pressures against adopting that that type of consent, but if if we really think about it, we don't really ever know if someone wants to be touched. Like I have a, I have friends that sometimes I just put my hand on them. Maybe they don't want to be touched, right? Maybe someone doesn't like having their leg rubbed, right? We we just don't know what somebody likes unless there are lovers, right? When when you're That's very right. close to somebody, you can know. But it it almost seems like we should. We, we should change our societal norm and get over the concept of it being sissy. And this will take work, both for men and women, to, to acknowledge that this is okay behavior. And just maybe, just start asking, "What, what do you yeah. think of it? Can you see that becoming a reality?" Why I feel,
1: it? I feel like, I feel like it's a really. I think it's a necessity at this point, given the this kind of damn dam that has broke, been broken by the Me Too and the, and the Times Up, because. A lot of men are lost. There are good guys that are just lost. They're like, "Look, yeah. you know, I, I don't know." I'll take the, I'll give the example of my own brothers. My brothers, we, I grew up in a very testosterone-filled environment. I'm the only girl. I'm, I grew up with four brothers and a dad, very alpha, very macho, very testosterone-filled. My brothers, when they started dating and going out, they were fucking clueless. It's their wives who were just like, "You can't say that." You can't do that. Don't act like an asshole. And they were the ones who were checking them and kind of giving them all these tools that they didn't have before because my mom definitely didn't teach them. I was the youngest, so I really. And for me, they would actually shut me down when I was a kid, when I was like, I'm a feminist. And they were like, ah, feminist, feminist, ah, stupid. I'll shut up, you know, and just be dismissive. Now, these are the same guys who are hardcore feminists, have multiple daughters and are all about girl power this is what happens right that what kind of immersion this is what happens to you when immersion happens like you're more educated you're more informed about things like oh my god I've been doing it all along nobody was really there to kind of check me or to show me that this that this wasn't the right thing to do I feel like these kind of just like you said, robust conversation also nuanced conversations need to happen. so both sides are on the same le- they, they're on the same playing field. they, so they understand things. they're like, "Oh, the, you know we have made it very clear and repetitively made it very clear that this is okay, this is not okay, right people guys are people are still going on dates where the girl is like, "I'll kiss you, but have a good night." And the guy's like, "No, but just like just a little." just a little like, hey, can I maybe grab a titty? Maybe grab an ass. It's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No no, grabbing asses. No grabbing titties. It's just a kiss. Have a good night, right? right. And, yeah. uh, and you know, that may come across as ha- harassment to a woman. It's like, I fucking said no. And you keep pursuing it. So I find that as a violation of my boundaries, and I find that as a violation of, like, my womanhood, like, you're harassing me. So I feel like just 100% 100,000,000% emotional intelligence needs to be taught in schools, period. period, period. I feel like that will also help resolve so many of these issues because when you look at the younger generation, the millennials and the Gen Zers, they are so woke. They are so in tune. They're like, hey, man, that's not cool. You can't talk to a woman like that. You cannot call her slut. You can't call her a bitch. No, you, no, she already said no. So. It does work. It is showing that it works. So the younger generation is almost teaching the older generation to be like, hey, man, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not cool. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Okay. So I feel uh, I 100% agree with you. Emotional intelligence education, 100,000%. Uh, having these robust conversations and kind of having them a- a- in the open where men are not being shamed for it. Yes, 100%. 100%. We should be having these conversations worldwide. Now, you know, and I know that in some cultures, it's a lot difficult to have these conversations. You know, if I try to go and have this conversation in Pakistan, maybe with some, you know, more maybe woke people, they listen to hear me out. But the majority of population is like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. What are you talking about? Even the women would be like, oh my God, no. Because you have to understand the misogyny is also um, programmed into the women. So the women also see themselves through the misogynistic lens, right?
0: right? And they might accept certain things that they shouldn't accept as okay, right? They're Precisely. Just, they're just they behaviors as okay, yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Oh, you know, we had this thing called, uh, we had the Women's March in Pakistan called the Aurat. Aurat means women, Aurat March. And the younger women, when they were taking it to the streets, the older women in the society were slut-shaming the younger women, Adar. Forget about the men slut-shaming. Even fellow older women were slut-shaming and saying, I did not, I, you know, I'm a, all about freedom, but why do you have to wear jeans? Why do you have to wear such tight clothes when you go do the march? Right. Actually, I can wear whatever the fuck I want. Actually, mess. Like, I don't need your fucking permission. That's what the entire movement is about. It's about right. liberation and freedom. But you're talking about a, a, a society that has tremendous amounts of challenges, not just among men, but also women that are deeply misogynistic, who, you know, they, they're working against their own interest.
0: Right. Yeah. And and, and I would actually say that there's there's many cases to be made that the current, uh, you know, patriarchal structure isn't good for men either. Right. So yeah. I, I, I think that. There's a natural inclination to, to, and this is becoming more popular in in modern day activism, which which I'm not fully on board with, but there's a lot of anger towards groups, right? And understandably so. If a woman has been consistently abused by man after man after man, it's going to give her an impression that men are a certain way. So it's understandable where that feeling and where that anger comes from. But I, I think we need to recognize that people, both men and women, are products of their environment. As we see, there's women who have internalized misogyny and men who have internalized misogyny.
2: Mm. Why
0: why is the man more responsible for that internalized misogyny than the woman? So I I personally don't think either should be more responsible. I think we need to understand that people were born into a system which Mm. caused to be the way they are and allow this to, to have us be a little bit more empathetic towards towards misogynists and racists and people like people who are hateful. I have compassion towards them because they weren't born hateful, right? Mm -hmm. Their system in an environment, which caused them to be hateful. And I think if we, if we can kind of right again, anger is justified, but if we could find a way to express that anger and then have a way to turn that somehow into empathy towards the other, I think we have that'll, give us the opportunity to, to reach a lot more people. Cause what I see many men become defensive. They, yes. They're like rape culture doesn't exist. Misogyny doesn't exist. Right. They get very defensive. We even see that we have almost as many down, down votes on this video as, as uh, likes, right. Why the hell mm. would anybody dislike what we said? It's just, you know, right. a fun chat, but, but it, they're, they're triggered by it. Mm. And, and I, I speak to many men who get triggered and, they feel like they're being blamed for something they didn't do. So Mm -hmm. something about how activism is taking place, it's being translated. And again, Mm -hmm. same with racial justice, many white people feel like they're being blamed. So I I, I want us to like find a way and, and I advocate for this constantly and I'm in disagreement with what mainstream activism is today because I, I truly think if the majority of men are, are triggered by the feminist narrative. And if the majority of white people are triggered by the, the black lives matter narrative. um, And if the majority of non-Jews and from experience are triggered by the, the, the anti anti anti-Semitic narrative, then it's, it's too easy to just say, well, they're just triggered, they're just fragile. Okay, sure, we could say that, but that doesn't solve our problem.
1: Right.
0: People are right. getting triggered because they feel like they're getting attacked. They feel like they're being blamed for something they're not doing. So I'm looking for ways how we could reform activism and approach these topics in a way that makes people open to hearing what we have to say. And I think empathy is one of the – empathy and clear communication is just I, – I feel like it's the way to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean,
1: I, I agree with you on, on that. Are I feel like I feel like um, I hundred percent agree with you. It's just like I know everybody now is right now, especially the way America is, and even people just around the world. It's all about identity. It's like this is who I am. This is the part of group I'm with. And if you're not with it, I'm not with you. You can fuck off. And I don't want to be. I don't want to have this conversation. It's like, well, well wait a minute. We only have one planet to exist on. So we have to find a way to get along. We have right. to. We can't be living in our little nooks and then just isolating the rest of the world. We can't possibly be having this, you know, we have to find some kind of a bridge. And I 100% agree with you. Empathy is a very uh, key thing. Clear communication is a key thing. I feel like the fact that. Somebody and I think there are conversations that are happening that people need to kind of have like these open, honest conversations, be like, you know, I I don't know. A guy can be like, I don't know what to do, or I feel, you know, lost. Uh if I go on a date and I kiss a girl, but she's also giving me kind of like cues that she wants like me to like keep going, but she keeps telling me no. So I need some kind of an understanding, right? Uh, and in that situation, I say, if a girl keeps saying you keep it's her, and then she's like kind of giving you that mixed signal, it is better to just be like, you know what? I had a lovely evening. Have a good night and I'll talk to you soon. Right. Peace yep. out. That is the best thing you can do for yourself. You didn't put yourself in an awkward position. You didn't put her in an awkward position. You took charge and you were like, mm-hmm. you know what? I Because also, you also have to understand. From a female perspective, maybe she's confused. Maybe she's trying to think and process. She's like, oh, I like this guy. But, you know, for women, I'll tell you on dates, what happens is we we talk to a guy. We're talking to him. We really like him. We go on a date. Next thing you know, he ends up at your place or you end up at his place. You're making out. You're just like, mm, I don't know if I want to sleep with this guy or not, you know. But if I sleep with him, then he's going to think I'm a slut, He's going to be like, oh, I'm easy. And he's probably never going to call me again. So maybe I need to make him work for it a little bit more. So maybe I won't sleep with it. So you have to understand that women have been taught this narrative about how men think. So right. we're doing these kind of hot, cold things because some other woman gave me some horrific advice that that's what men want. And right. then dudes are getting terrible advice from other dudes. Oh, that's what a woman wants. Oh, a woman wants a dick pic. No woman in her right mind wants an unsolicited dick pic, gentlemen. Let yeah, me speak weird.
0: for that. Why, why do people do that? I, I mean, you don't need to be a genius. Like, who Who thinks that? I, I know it happens a lot. It just I, I don't understand why someone would think that's somehow going to attract them. It's like, oh, you have a nice dick. Let's fuck. Like, that's not going to be the reaction you get from sending a dick pic. So I, I've never okay. understood that.
1: you want to make a woman you want to turn a woman on you want a woman to fuck you send her your bank statement send her your 401k okay send her the picture of your house okay that shit she will be there in a hot minute she'll be right there she'll be like i will be right i have seen your retirement plan and you have a very diversified portfolio i will be right there okay Because, but men are giving terrible advice to men saying, Oh, yeah, woman wants a dick pic. And women are like, What the fuck? Because dudes are thinking like dudes, right? They're like, Oh, yeah, I would totally, I would love to get a hot naked picture of a girl. Yeah, but a woman doesn't see it like that. We don't want a naked picture or a dick pic of a guy. That doesn't turn us on. It just doesn't, right? Men are like visual like that. And women are just, this is like going to fucking back to cave woman days where women are always thinking about security. They're thinking about safety. They're thinking about, hey, you know, this shit is like encoded in your fucking DNA where you're always thinking about, oh, like safety and security, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. I know some women might be like, ah, oh, that's not true. I mean, for fuck's sake. Like, like just look at how... Uh, you know, just look at the dating patterns really around the world. You know, how women, you know, that's why women don't like unsolicited dick pics. It's just not a thing. Maybe there are some women who like it. God bless. They're not, I'm not shaming them. But Um, most of the women, including myself, it's just like, why did you send me that?
0: Right. Uh, You know, you you brought up biological differences and I, I actually enjoy that conversation. I think so much of the difference between women and men is actually easier understood if we, if we look at evolution, yep. I purposely didn't get into today just cause it's controversial. It's a can of it's, it's a can of worms. Right. And I, I wasn't sure that you'd be down to have that conversation, but I, I, I actually think that let's do it. That, yeah. So I'd say on, on the next one we schedule let's, let's take a deep dive today. We talked about many societal aspects of, uh, the, you know, of the re- relationship between women and men. But I, I think next time we could focus on the biological ones and there, it is interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll leave with one because there, there is something related to uh comedy. Actually, there's, there's a theory as to why men are more likely, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that it might be that men are just more interested in, in going into the c- career of comedy and mm-hmm. that might be purely societal, but there's actually a theory that it's actually, there's an evolutionary explanation and it's that uh, uh, women had to be selective, right? Mm-hmm. A woman can only be impregnated by one man. She should find the best genes that doesn't mean she should be monogamous because sex was used to build relationships. So, you know, it could be advantageous for a woman to sleep with one man who has the best genes and then sleep with another man who's likely to stick around and help her raise the children. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't mean women um, are wired to be monogamous, but they're much more selective. That's, and we see that today. Women are extremely, or compared to men, are way more selective. Men, yeah. would fuck anything. Women are are looking for certain type types of men. The, the most advantageous strategy for a man is to is to just have sex with as many women as possible. Why not? It doesn't cost him much. It's just sex. He comes. She might get pregnant. His genes are spreading. He doesn't need to carry the child. And often he doesn't need to care for the child. So our sexual reproduction strategies are vastly different. And this, I think, causes many difference in in uh, just innately who we are, right? And we're just talking about averages. This doesn't say anything about an individual. Every individual is different. But when we're trying to understand groups, you, you know, you, you look at the, the averages and those do, do have differences. So men as playing the role of needing to court the woman, needing to impress her, men um, found interest or even developed skills in things like humor because humor was used to make women laugh. And if, you know, if you ask women, what, um, what, 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 a, what kind of a man do you want? Humor will probably be in the top five.
1: Yes, 100%. If,
0: if you ask a man the same question, he will not say he cares about humor in a woman. That's right. right? So women care about humor because it shows that the man's intelligent and charismatic. If he's intelligent and charismatic, yes. you charismatic, know, he might have good genes. So, so we, we could almost see like a, a, a difference in, in, in how we are in relation to comedy um and this might create some of the differences. This does not by any stretch of the word mean that women are not funny. Yes. Again, it comes down to the individual. Some yes. women, some women are funny, some women aren't. Some men are funny, some men aren't. But it, it's it's an interesting, it, it's interesting how that plays out. I don't know how much utility there is talking about this because I think when people hear this conversation, they're like, oh, okay, so it's just biological explanation. Um, misogyny yes. doesn't exist, there's no barrier to entry. So I, I think we need to be careful with how we have this conversation, but um, you know,
1: yeah. I uh, I wonder I wonder if there's a study or if there's any kind of articles out there about this kind of conversation about how genetically men are kind of predisposed or just kind of naturally attracted to being funny or you know or pursuing something like stand up comedy. Uh, but you know, there's also the the nurture aspect of it, right? There's a Nature versus nurture aspect. Somebody was asking, um, so I'm working my first stand-up special right now, and my director and I were talking, and he goes, you know, Mona, I, I've always been fascinated why you ended up the way you did. Like, how have you, how have you, how did you become you? He's like, I want to know, what was that thing? How did you become you? And I think I would say that it also goes back to the nurture aspect of it. Even though I was an, uh, the only girl in the family I grew up with so many men that it I had to be just as strong, if not stronger, louder, tougher. So the nurture was be like a dude. I had permissions, like my brothers have permissions, right? They would they had permissions, so I automatically gave myself permissions. I was like, I'm right. just one of the dudes. Like, I'm just one of the boys. Like, what? What? What's the big deal? I don't understand. I remember when I was eight years old, my mom sat me down and told me I was a girl. I was devastated. I was fucking devastated. I would see My mom was like, "You are a girl." I'm like, "What do you mean? Like, what do you mean by that?" She's like, "You're a girl. You can't just sit with, like your legs spread." I'm like, "Why is that? Why is that not possible?" Um, but like for me, it's like you know, it was the nurture aspect of it of growing up with men, men constantly being like almost. In our household, femininity was not welcomed.
0: Right, interesting.
1: You were not allowed to be sensitive and feminine. Not welcomed. Not the mother, not the sister, not the daughter. You are allowed, you are told to be as tough as the boys. Be tough like one of the boys. You're not allowed to be this girly girl. Don't get your nails done. Don't get your hair. I didn't know any of this shit. It took me well into my 20s to even learn how to groom myself properly. I didn't grow up in that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, it was looked down upon in my house to be a girly girl. It was looked down upon to like do your hair and do your nails. What? No, no. Just be like one of the dudes, you know? So nurture plays a big role. I feel like also I I think early on kind of gave me permissions to do things that no woman really from my background usually would, right? Like, right. I mean, I I, that's why I feel like I've been uh, kind of pretty adventurous with my life where doing stand up comedy and picking up my bags at 18 and leaving the house. And, you know, just saying deuces, being like the first woman ever from my mom's side and dad's side to leave the house without being married, without having a husband to go to. Just like being like, I'm out. I'm just going to live my life. It was a really big deal. I remember my aunts getting really nervous and making sure that my cousins wouldn't speak to me. Because they don't want their daughters to be influenced by me. They mm. so were like, oh my God. Now that my daughters are gonna think that it's okay to pick up their bags and leave. Yeah, it is okay to pick up your bags and leave. It's okay. You can do that. It's fine. If that's what makes you happy, do it.
0: When when ultra conservative family doesn't want their their children to speak to their cousins, you know you're doing it right. <laughs> yes.
1: I have broken so many barriers, dar It's just ridiculous. I, uh, you know, I, I'm a very, I'm a, I talk a, a great deal about it. I was talking about it yesterday uh, on my live stream about uh, generational trauma. There is this generational trauma that is passed on from, you know, boys, girls, it doesn't matter. And somebody has to kind of make peace with it. and Somebody has to be like, A, recognize it and be, you know, be like, we need to fix this. I it needs to end with me. It needs to end with someone. Let it be me. Let it end with me. So I think I've kind of Thank made that my kind of life mission to be like, let the generational trauma end with me. Well,
0: I think I think you, you've done it, you know, you've broken that generational trauma, but not only have you done it for yourself, you're uh you're inspiring countless other women to do the same. so you know I, I truly appreciate what you're doing. And um, I think, you know, I, it was a great pleasure speaking to you. Are, th- are there any final thoughts, final words? Any- final
1: thoughts. I, I honestly, I really enjoyed this conversation. This was a really fabulous conversation. You know what it is, old sojar? I think a lot of times it's difficult to have these kind of conversations with somebody of like a middle Eastern background who's Israeli or South Asian. So I really appreciate, you know, I, I listen, I, I'm a fan of yours. I really love your openness, your wokeness, your, you know, your, your desire to learn more and grow as a person and spiritually, like how open you are. So I really, really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It was a great pleasure. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely do this again soon.
1: Yes, I'm uh, down.
0: For those viewing, you could find all of Mona's contact information in the description. If you haven't already, give this a upvote. Unless you don't like it, then give it a downvote. You're free to do how you want. And, uh, yeah, if you're new to this channel, subscribe. We do cool stuff all the time. We're going live this Thursday for an awesome debate on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And with that, friends, from Tel Aviv Israel and from Los Angeles, California, United States, signing off.